service or asset to be fungible means you can exchange one such good or service or asset for another of the same. They're all equivalent and thus interchangeable. A piece of currency, like a U.S. dollar bill or British pound coin, are fungible in that you can replace one dollar bill with another or one pound coin with another, and there's a good chance the person who owns that bill or coin wouldn't even notice. But more importantly, those notes and coins are legally interchangeable, so one bill or coin is worth the same as any other, of the same value and type, in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of the economy. The same can be true of other things, though, including, for instance, commodities, like a barrel of oil. As long as the barrel, which is often a unit of measurement rather than a literal barrel of oil, as long as that quantity of oil is the same, and it's the same type of oil, so it adheres to a given set of standards in terms of quality, purity, and utility, you can generally swap one barrel of oil, one specific quantity of this substance, for another of equal volume without any trouble. They're not literally the same oil any more than a dollar bill swapped for another dollar bill is literally the same banknote but they're practically the same, in the sense that there's no real difference between one and the other for most purposes. You can spend the dollar, you can use the oil as fuel, so they're functionally equivalent. For something to be non-fungible, it cannot be swap-outable in this way. So a painting will generally be non-fungible because each painting will be unique, even if they're intentionally made to look pretty similar. And a car, though it will typically be fungible with other cars of the same make, model, and outfitting when it's fresh off the assembly line, will be non-fungible after it's been driven off the lot. A used car has been worn in a unique way and thus is not the same in the eyes of the market as another used car that is otherwise identical. Likewise, a dollar bill that has been defaced by the artist Banksy maybe Banksy doodled on it and signed it at some point, will tend to be non-fungible, because it now has a perceptual, at least, value above the face value of the dollar. It might be worth millions of dollars and thus cannot be replaced with another dollar bill lacking that doodle. A dollar bill with a doodle jotted by a random non-famous artist, on the other hand, will tend to still be fungible, as the banks don't really care about that sort of thing, and most of us, unless we really like the drawing on the face of the bill, won't value it any more highly or any lower than a comparable non-doodle-bearing dollar or a dollar with another doodle by another non-famous person on it. A lot of interpretation goes into determining fungibility and non-fungibility in some cases then, because our perception of value can influence what's replaceable and what's not, and at what point something becomes more valuable than the sum of the fungible components of which it's composed. A pre-stretched canvas, primed for painting, and pre-packaged and sold at an art supply store, might be practically fungible, 
for another stretched canvas of the same size and quality and brand, likewise prepackaged. But as soon as you paint something atop that canvas, or as soon as you open it up and damage it, reducing its utility, it's less likely to be interchangeable in this way. This distinction can be even further complicated when the non-fungibility of something is implied or created intentionally in the digital world, rather than emerging through the natural wear and tear or improvement, subjective or based on utility, of a physical object. What I'd like to talk about today is one manifestation of digital non-fungibility and what it might mean for the future of virtual assets. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled GameStop Entering NFT and Cryptocurrency Markets as Part of Turnaround Plan. In 2012, it was posited by a group of developers, including the future creator of the crypto asset Ethereum, Vitalik Buterin, that Bitcoin, a fungible digital asset based on the blockchain, could be made non-fungible by emphasizing some of these assets using a ticker symbol and unique hash, a unique sequence of characters, basically, that are identified as being special and which are thus colored to use the terminology applied by these developers and consequently distinct from all the rest of these otherwise identical digital assets. Their colored coins paper on the subject posited something similar to what eventually manifested on the Ethereum and similar networks, with all the associated benefits and downsides of carving out some special tokens in a sea of otherwise identical, interchangeable tokens, including concerns related to legal issues, network bloat caused by the specialness of these relatively few but ostensibly more desirable tokens, and the inability, at the time at least, for the network itself, which is neutral about pricing, to keep track of the value of a given color-delineated coin. It was also posited, however, that this coloring of coins could serve as a stand-in or test for other types of unique assets that might someday be stored or managed on the blockchain, that it could allow for the transfer and management of such assets without requiring a third party or central authorization mechanism like a bank or a stock exchange, and the transfer and ownership could conceivably be anonymous for everyone involved. Bitcoin's inherent limitations stifled early efforts to make this concept happen on scale. But by 2014, sub-projects built atop Bitcoin's blockchain allowed for this kind of token labeling and non-fungibility, which was used to enable card and meme trading on the network. In 2015, a game called Spells of Genesis, a card-based video game, allowed players to acquire in-game assets based on the blockchain. And in late 2017, a digital art marketplace called CryptoPunks launched on the Ethereum blockchain, which was a bit more optimized for this sort of use case than Bitcoin. 
Fundamentally, a blockchain is just a ledger that keeps track of transactions. Records stored on this ledger are called blocks, and these blocks are tallied and archived and generally publicly visible and maintained by a variety of different programmatic methods that prevent someone from lying about who transferred what to whom, which would create a fake block with fake data that would nonetheless be accepted by this blockchain. So there's a lot of methods by which they prevent that from happening. So in essence, you've got a big ledger of transactions. They're time-stamped and have a cryptographic hash attached to them which is a fancy and relatively secure way of storing and labeling this kind of information on this kind of list. And this means that anything you store in this way on this ledger is theoretically at least made permanent and visible for all time by anyone who's using this network. In Bitcoin's case, this generally just meant the transfer of digital coins from person to person, which is why they're mostly limited to exchanging these fungible tokens. And doing much more than that on their specific blockchain is tricky and cumbersome and typically requires building additional infrastructure atop it. Other blockchain-based crypto assets, like the aforementioned Ethereum, allow for other stuff to be stored in these ledger entries as well, including licenses that can be swapped and bought like a token. So instead of a given unit of exchange being precisely the same as all the others, you might have a unit of exchange that has a unique signature attached to it that gives implied ownership of a physical or digital good to whomever owns that unit, that token. So rather than all of these tokens being equal and fungible, you have a network of tokens that have other stuff attached to them, and thus, other stuff stored in the blockchain, in that big public ledger that everyone can see, which means everyone knows who, or at least which, anonymized account owns what. What early makers and platforms and games within this space were doing, back in the mid-20-teens then, was creating tokens with stuff attached to them to use on these big public lists that keep track of who owns which token. CryptoPunks made a bunch of digital faces and tethered those to Ethereum tokens, and some artists and technologists as early as 2014 were connecting unique animated digital artwork to these sorts of tokens as well, and selling those tokens, which granted implied ownership of these artworks, to the token bearer. The term NFT, which stands for non-fungible token, has become popular in mainstream culture over the past year or two because of a series of major NFT sales. Art auction houses have hosted such sales, some of which have resulted in multi-million dollar purchases of these artworks, ranging from short video clips to digital cards developed for online games. Those early CryptoPunk artworks, which were originally given away for free, have also seen high price tags of late, some being sold for millions of dollars, others for mere hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's important to note that NFTs almost always generate scarcity where it didn't exist before. 
and are intended to delineate and identify special tokens in a context in which all of the tokens are otherwise, generally by default, identical. Just like with that old-school colored coin project that was posited for the relatively early Bitcoin blockchain, NFTs are largely an effort to distinguish one fungible asset from another. People are drawing on the dollar bills, and in some cases, the distinguishing characteristics are just as arbitrary as saying, this one is red, this one is green, and you know which is which based on what number is at the end of the long chain of characters arbitrarily used to track your token in a sea of identical tokens, in which case even the color is merely theoretical. It's an artificial label applied to a string of numbers, and thus to the token those numbers identify. And that is generally it. That's the core concept underpinning all of the investment in this space. And if you're asking, doesn't that just mean we're putting price tags on things that are cheap or free in the digital world, treating them as if they're finite when they're not? Or if you're asking, can't I just right-click and select Save As to download any of these images that these NFT holders supposedly own, viewing it whenever I like, online or offline? The answer to both of these questions is yes. And these are some of the more common concerns and criticisms raised by NFT skeptics right now, who see this trend and its mainstreaming as little more than a money grab by people who have managed to build something akin to a pyramid scheme, flogged by celebrities and made to look like the next big thing by a bunch of tech world insiders who are looking to make a quick buck off of people who don't know any better. It's worth noting, though, that this is kind of what we already do throughout the economy and society with other sorts of goods. Most t-shirts are functionally identical until we slap a logo on them, or put some kind of clever graphic or sports team insignia or slogan or quote on them, at which point we can charge more for these otherwise identical shirts. We play similar games with all sorts of products, aiming to make them stand out from the generic, functionally identical goods that we can make pretty cheap in factories around the world. And we do this with visual designations and associations with other things, like famous people, beloved brands, and concepts that we find endearing. Artists can sell prints of their work, so not unique works of art, just printed out copies of these works. But if they put a number on them and limit the quantity that they print, if you own print number 3 of 100 of a piece of artwork, that's a potentially unlimited product made artificially finite and thus potentially made more valuable on the market because of that relative scarcity. It's not worth as much as the original artwork, but relative to a poster of an artwork printed in unlimited quantities, with no cap and thus no scarcity, a print with a capped number of copies made will tend to be worth more. This is why, even though there are a lot of people operating in this space who truly want to make the underlying technologies better, safer, more valuable for everyone who uses them, while also enabling more use cases for them over time and empowering people in ways that are not possible today, much of the effort 
in this space right now is dedicated to what amounts to the expansion of a giant trading card racket and the creation of a new online collectibles scene. There's rampant speculation, more or less gambling, oriented around acquiring assets, digital beanie babies, basically, that the folks doing the acquiring hope will skyrocket in price, making them rich. And while some of that money finds its way back to the people making the stuff attached to those tokens, much of that wealth seems to be accumulating amongst a small number of token holders. There's also quite a lot of plagiarism happening in this space, in large part because it is so unregulated and, at times at least, decentralized. If I create a piece of artwork, you could snap a picture of it, upload that picture to an NFT platform, or simply attach it to a digital token yourself, and then sell that supposed digital artwork, which again is actually just an undifferentiated token that is theoretically attached to this image in some way, for a profit. And that's profit that I, the maker of that image, don't get, or even see a cut of. Now this could, in theory, someday work better. And some of the more starry-eyed ambitions for these technologies do sound kind of neat, because if done well, I could create something, that something could be sold to someone else, and then anytime that thing, that artificially scarce collectible, attached to one of these tokens, is resold in the future, because of how these sales are tracked on the blockchain, I would automatically receive a cut of that future sale. So the inflation in price that possibly occurs over time would be good for me, the creator of the thing attached to this token, as well as the owner of that thing. Which honestly would be a dramatic improvement over a lot of the work funding mechanisms that we have today, even if it's still predicated on artificial scarcity, and thus not good for many types of work. Now unfortunately, for makers of things that would fit within this schema, that's typically not how it works today, even though there are technically networks and platforms that already have this functionality in place. And not only is a lot of work being plagiarized, a whole lot of the price inflation that seems to be happening can be traced back to folks who are invested in this industry, playing financial tricks and stirring up beneficial cycles of promotion and acquisition to up the perceived value of the industry and thus their existing assets, and of businesses to which they're attached. On a practical level, that means some of the largest sales of NFTs have been between NFT enthusiasts who already hold a lot of these types of tokens, and in many cases either own, operate, or work for platforms that profit anytime NFTs are minted or sold. So if I'm one of these people, I might spend $63.9 million on a digital artwork by Beeple, an artist who has become well-known for these sorts of sales and whose work was auctioned for that amount back in early 2021. And in doing so, I would be acquiring an asset I can resell in the future. But I've also increased the presumed price of some of my other investments in this space. More people pay attention when that kind of money is being forked out for a certain type of work. And if I think I can recoup the amount spent at an auction via gains on my other NFT assets post-auction and potentially through profits on my interconnected NFT-related business activities, that cost then becomes an investment 
not an expense. I might spend $65 million on an NFT, but in doing so, I've ballooned the whole NFT industry and thus maybe gained several times what I spent. There's a circular element to the NFT world as it exists today then, and though some of these criticisms are the same or similar to those applied to crypto assets more generally, this is all fake, why does it matter? It's assumed value based on nothing, etc. And while other criticisms are equally applicable to the fine art world as that same cyclical process of price manipulation between insider owners of assets who then reap most of the profits has long been seen there as well, some of these criticisms are unique to the conceptual underpinnings of NFTs because of their very nature, attaching stuff to ostensibly permanent public records is a tricky business with a lot that can go wrong. Looping back around to that piece in the journal, the story is about a U.S.-based video game retailer called GameStop, which achieved meme stock status in 2020, basically becoming popular because its stock price was low, but its nostalgia value for people on the online forum Reddit was high. There was a great deal of excitement that this company could maybe turn itself around based on that nostalgia and some maybe opportunities it could take advantage of. But a lot of this memification and stock popularity was based on speculation and the idea that an online mob, if large and enthusiastic enough, could inflate the price and make a lot of the investors who bought in at the earlier low price rich. This is a popularized example of what's often called a pump-and-dump scheme, where someone buys a whole lot of a low-priced asset, convinces other people that those assets are undervalued, pumps up enthusiasm about it and the price associated with it, and then sells the assets that they hold at a tidy profit, dumping those assets because they were just in it for the money. It's a bit like a pyramid scheme, and this model is consistently appealing to some groups of people because everyone wants to believe that they'll be one of the few who gets in and out early. They're at the top of the pyramid, so they make money off of the people who come in later who are left holding these actually not very valuable assets after the surge ends, and the prices drop back down to their normal low levels. It would seem... That since all that happened, GameStop leadership has leaned into this meme-stimulated status and is now throwing around popular keywords willy-nilly, introducing NFTs because they're popular and also rife for this same type of speculation, just like their stock was in 2020. And that could help them boost brand awareness and sales and profits. They are far from the only company to be jumping on this bandwagon right now, though, as a slew of businesses and brands have taken the opportunity to either earnestly or satirically mint their own NFT tokens, hoping to get in on the gold rush of people being willing to pay inflated prices for seemingly unique or at least limited assets with a fixed lower price to make, which is a move that frankly just makes good business sense as long as you can find someone willing to pay those inflated prices. That politicians are beginning to issue their own NFTs, however, suggests that NFT mania may be approaching its jump-the-shark moment, 
where it recedes from popular attention and popularity, potentially evolving as a technology rather than just a trend for a while, and maybe returning later as something else, with some other dominant use case. Creeping up over the horizon, though, is an associated concept, that of Web3 or Web3.0, which is oriented around the decentralization of the internet and technologies which enable such decentralization. The idea is the blockchain and tokens and NFTs and all these other technologies will allow us to build what amounts to a new internet and maybe even a new society free of the regulating, stifling forces of Facebook and the government and traditional economic gatekeepers. And just like NFTs, some people seem to be genuinely interested in this larger concept and the promises it offers, while others seem to be using it as a replacement term for NFTs and crypto, now that those latter two words have become so mainstream and in some contexts associated primarily with scams and criminality. This is a very superficial assessment of this space as it exists today, and it's important to note that many people are using these terms to refer to slightly or dramatically different things, so there's a sort of definition creep happening in real time in this general industry. So the goalposts are being moved and the concepts beneath these labels are being switched around to align with the needs and ambitions of those using them, in some cases. All that said, there's potentially a lot to be excited about for folks who are keen to see the online status quo shaken up, but there's also quite a lot of grift and abuse potential in these technologies right now because they're so new and unregulated and because much of their utility and use today is being guided and orchestrated by people and entities primarily keen to make a quick buck. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams by Matthew Walker. This book is useful in some ways if you're looking for tips backed by research on how to sleep better and what better might mean in that context, what you should be aiming for. But I found it most useful as a fairly cohesive summary of the most recent data and research that we have on sleep and what it is and how it connects to the other things that we do and the processes involved in sleep, the potential biological rationales and mechanisms at play. There's a whole lot that we just haven't known about this incredibly fundamental function of the human body until just recently, and there's still quite a lot that we're trying to figure out, especially in the specifics, but we do know a whole lot more now than we did even five or ten years ago, and this book is an excellent summary of those findings. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a bundle of other projects that I produce, written and audio and otherwise, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. 
I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.